All right, my name is Billy. I'm one of the pastor elders here at Reality Ventura. Um, we have been studying through the book of Matthew for uh, almost probably about two years or something like that. It's been a long time. And so we are in the Garden of Gethsemane this morning, even though it's the week after Easter. So we're in Matthew chapter 26. The title of today's sermon is Victory in the Garden. And we're going we're gonna to have a chance to to witness and see Jesus' victory in this garden. So Matthew chapter 26, we're studying specifically just 10 verses today, verses 36 to 46, but I'm going to read the verses that precede it and some of the verses that follow it so we can see our passage just as it sets in its context in, in Scripture. So we'll start reading in verse 30. After singing a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Here's our passage today. Jesus came to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here. Keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them. He fell on his face. He prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, See, you men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. He left them again, went away, and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And then he came back to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Verse 47 It says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied with a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, whoever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and he said, hail rabbi, and he kissed him. This is the word of God. Church, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this this intimate view of Jesus as he wrestles with sorrow, as he struggles with betrayal, his friends letting him down, as he he wrestles with, with deep depression and temptation. Thank you, God, that you've given us a view into this moment. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would anoint and bless this teaching, that you would be our instructor. Pray, God, for us to be changed and to grow in light of the words that you have for us this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we, uh, we get a glimpse into the suffering of Jesus, and we see Jesus struggling. We also get to see a path to victory 
uh, over temptation here today. This is a path which we desperately need to know. And so Jesus, he brings Peter, James, and John to this place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane is a word that simply just means olive press. And Gethsemane is a little garden which is located on the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus and his disciples, they've finished their last supper meal, if you'll remember. The Passover, they celebrated the Passover. They're done with that now. Um, Our text today says that they sung a hymn, and then they go out of the city, and they climb the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives, as you might be able to imagine, is simply a big hill that's covered in olive trees. They enter this garden called Olive Press, or Gethsemane. Obviously, it's a place where the olives would have been processed and pressed for their oil. And this is the scene of this great struggle that we see in our text today. And so it's important for us to explore and understand this struggling. This is a, a very intimate view. Uh, if you ever wonder, how, am I, how do I deal with temptation? How do I deal with my brokenness? How do I deal with the hard things in life that I just don't want to do? We're, we're given this incredible window into Jesus as he wrestles with those very same things. And it's really good for us to know these things, to see these things. Uh, I'm, it's good for us to know Jesus knowing, a a deep knowing that requires more than just a passing thought. So to know Jesus, truly, I believe that we have to know him in his suffering because a knowledge of Jesus, apart from his suffering, is pointless. It's a real challenge for us to do that, though, to really give ourselves the desire and to give ourselves to the study of suffering or the study of sacrifice because we spend most of our lives in our culture avoiding such things, avoiding suffering. And so choosing to dwell on and understand the depths of Jesus' suffering kind of goes against our tendencies. It's not comfortable or fun, but it is, however, necessary and it's good and beneficial. So that is what we are doing. So truly knowing Jesus requires time spent both studying Jesus, right, in the Word of God, learning about Him, and it requires time with Jesus. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from the 1800s in in England, um, on April 12, 1885, this is a week after Easter, he gave this sermon entitled, The Man Christ Jesus. And in this sermon, he called for a consideration of all of the truth about Jesus' humanity and suffering and, and was sort of putting forth the need for us to really, truly know Jesus and understand him in his humanity and his suffering in order to really know him. And he says this in that sermon. He says, It will not be enough for you to hear or to read of Christ. You must do your own thinking and consider your Lord for yourselves. For the wine is not made by gathering the clusters, but by treading the grapes in the wine vat. Under the pressure, the juice, the juice leaves forth. It's not just simply the reading of the word. It's not just the listening to sermons. It's the working out this truth in our hearts that leads to understanding. And, and we see, if you've ever, ever read about or studied Charles Spurgeon, he spent his whole life wanting to grasp the depth of Christ and then pass it on to people. It's, he gave his entire life to that. But it's amazing because he was such an incredible preacher, very gifted, very smart, very well-spoken. Um, but he, he struggled, and he, he said, inevitably, I fall far short. I feel totally inadequate. And he would say over and over again in his sermons and in his writings, he would say this. He would say, you need to shut yourself up with Jesus if you would know him, right? Revealing his own inadequacy and saying, if, if you want to know Jesus, you need to be with Jesus. You need to seek him out and spend time with Jesus, That's our goal today. Our goal is to shut ourselves up with, to be with Jesus in this intimate moment in the Garden of Gethsemane, this moment of sorrow. And so back to our story, Jesus and these 
three disciples. They reach Gethsemane, and he tells them to wait while he prays. And what are they supposed to do while waiting? So consider the timing of this whole episode here. Jesus had just told them that they would all fall away. He's like, you guys are all going to defect. You're going to succumb to fear. You're going to succumb to temptation. And then he recites from Zechariah chapter 13, this prophecy. He recites it to them. He says, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so these disciples who would have known that, that prophecy, all of a sudden they're going, wait a minute. We're the sheep that are going to be scattered? No, Jesus, not me, right? Hearing this warning, they probably should have spent the evening praying. Praying that they not fail. Praying that God would give them the strength to triumph in temptation. But they were smug and they were self-confident, right? They would rely on themselves and their own strength to resist whatever lie ahead. They were so self-confident, in fact, that Peter says these words. He goes, even though all may fall away, I will never fall away. Those are strong words, right? Like he's, he's putting his money where his mouth is, right? He's being a strong man. Peter thought more highly of himself than he ought to have thought in that moment. As Jesus replies right back, he goes, truly, I'll say to you, before the rooster crows, right? When do roosters crow? At dawn, right? So when the sun comes up. So before 6 a.m. in this time of year, the sun would come up right around 6 a.m. Here they are in the garden. We know it's after midnight already. He's like, in the next few hours, before the rooster crows announcing the dawn tonight, you're going to fall away, right? It's just like the next couple hours, Peter's like, whatever, no way, right? Just so self-confident. All the disciples said the same. See, they meant well. They had good intentions. Certainly, they loved their Lord, but they were not capable. They were not capable in their own strength to stand the temptation that they were about to face. They would have done well to be on their faces in prayer for strength. They would have been done well to imitate Jesus. And so Jesus tells him to sit there while he goes a little further away to pray. And this lesson that he is teaching the disciples on this evening is a very intimate, very direct lesson. They're going to see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears how to deal with temptation. They're going to hear Jesus being pressed and, and tempted. And all of this unfolds uh, in this story. And, and as we unpack it and as we examine it, what we're going to do here today is we're going to kind of hang all of our thoughts on four words. And the first word we see in our story is sorrow. Sorrow. See, the joy of the Passover meal is ended. The sweetness of the final hymn is over. It's already been sung. Jesus and his disciples, they would have left the upper room and they would have gone east. They would have gone out the eastern gate or, uh, through the wall in Jerusalem They would have gone down a slope into the valley of Kedron, right? And they would have hiked up the slope to the Mount of Olives. And as they make that transition through the valley of Kedron up the slope, everybody's heart would be pounding because now you're going uphill. But we see in our text, all of a sudden, there's this anticipation of Calvary that begins to weigh heavy upon Jesus. It's, we might say in our modern vernacular, that reality hits him. The realness of the moment sets in. All that lies ahead for Jesus now, he realizes with all the good stuff behind. All that lies ahead is betrayal, this mock trial, torture, sin-bearing, separation from the Father, and physical suffering and death. And so Jesus deposits nine of his disciples on the way up the hill. Actually, he deposits eight of them, right? Because Judas wasn't there. He was off collecting his money and pointing the way to where Jesus was. So Jesus leaves eight of his disciples And he takes just three up with him, a little further up into this garden. In verse 37, it says, He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, 
and he began to be grieved and distressed. The sons of Zebedee are James and John, so Peter, James, and John. And Jesus says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. You just feel the weight of the sorrow. That is a sorrowful moment right there. Jesus begins to enter this deep anguish, and there are many things to cause him sorrow. Rightly, the prophet Isaiah had called the Messiah a man of sorrows, and all through his life, things had caused Jesus sorrow. But now, it seems like all the sorrows of life are culminating in this one moment, and I believe, personally, I believe that Jesus' soul is totally repulsed by the thought of going to the cross. Not for the reasons that I would be dreading the cross, right? It's not because he hates the thought of physical pain exclusively. That's all I would be thinking about. But the cross is repulsing to Jesus because upon the cross, the wrath of God is poured out upon him. And consider the horror of that. Alienation and separation from the Father. Consider Jesus' absolute sinlessness, receiving the wrath of God as Jesus bears the weight of the punishment for my sin, sin that he never committed. He pays the penalty for other people's crimes. And so this night, he's like, man, the upper room fellowship is over, right? This, that awesome triumphant moment where breaking of the bread and the, and the passing of the cup had the power in that moment. Like, this represents the new covenant and all of the excitement and thinking about it. Now Jesus realizes, I'm on the path to that cross. There's, there's no more feasting. There's no more meal. There's no more sleeping. He begins to feel the weight of the cross before it's even put on his back. And the cross is looming large, and with it, the full blast of judgment for sin and death. And it says he's grieved and he's distressed. In our modern vocabulary, we would probably say that he was depressed. He was wrestling with depression. And depression means a restless shrinking back from some trouble that can't be escaped or avoided. See, it's this deep sadness. He's like, I can't escape it. That's but his whole life, his 33 years on earth, he had been taking a 33-year journey to a cross. And he's wrestling with severe sadness and loneliness. And consider all of the things that would have brought this deep depression, this deep sorrow to Jesus, things that would have depressed him. Judas' betrayal, right? Jesus, who's the truest friend, the lover of all, Judas hated this man. Judas hated Jesus. This sinner, this traitor, he turns against Jesus. He's like this human Lucifer, fallen from holy privilege, fallen from this this place of intimacy with Jesus. That would have been just terrifying and depressing to have a friend fall like that. Think about the desertion of the 11 other disciples. It wasn't just Judas. Jesus is the source of their life, right? Think about the denial by Peter. Jesus is the one man who wasn't ashamed to call sinful, loud Peter his friend and his brother. Jesus is to become the object of Peter's shame. Jesus is to become the object of, Jesus's, of, of, of Peter's cursing. How depressing to have those you love the most, wh- whom you've given the most to, turn against you like that. And not just individuals and not just the small group of people, but the entire nation of Israel had turned against Jesus. And here's Jesus, their deliverer, their Messiah. You don't get more pro-Israel than Jesus was. And they turn on him, the whole nation. Consider the injustice of men toward Jesus. Here's the prince of truth, the lover of righteousness. And he's cheated and he's denied justice by petty courts, lying witnesses. Consider the cursing and the mocking of humanity toward him. The one whom the angels praise 
The one who is glorified and adored in eternal perfection, the Bible tells us. The creator king. He's now to be blasted by the profanity of stupid sinners. That's heavy. That's depressing. And just think about the depression and the loneliness and the agony of the suffering that he would bear our sin. Think of the words spoken from the cross. Jesus paints the most clear picture of the utter agony of the cross when he says, he cries out in a loud voice that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken and in agony alone on the cross, Jesus hangs. The eternal deathless one dying for people like me, tasting death for me apart from the Father. So I will never have to taste death apart from the Father. No wonder he's depressed. No wonder he went to the cross in agony. Uh, It's been said that Jesus disarmed death by burying its blade in his own heart. Right? That death is this this enemy, and and Jesus disarms the enemy by taking the blade of the enemy and, and sticking it in his own heart. That's not an easy calling. Sorrow and deep depression grip him as he moves into the darkness through those trees that dark night on the Mount of Olives. This isn't theatrics. This isn't Jesus being melodramatic. This is reality. This is Jesus pre-living the pain that he anticipates on the cross. And he previews this horror alone this night in the garden as his closest friends keep falling asleep. This loneliness and impending horror would have been overwhelming. I can only imagine what the cross would be like for a regular person. But the lonely suffering of sinless Jesus here in the garden, sitting there abandoned, it's just inconceivable. And so here we see this picture. In this garden called Olive Press sits the Lamb of God being pressed with sorrow by his love for us. Being being pressed, feeling the oppression of sorrow, of loneliness, of depression, of abandonment. And so he says he began to feel grieved and distressed. It gives us this impression that it kind of started and then it builds. And the struggle now seems to be a struggle over whether he's even going to go to the cross because the prospect of sin-bearing is so frightening. It's so fearful. It's so threatening. It's so terrifying, right? And Jesus wants to ask if there's any way it can be avoided. Now, I'm going to pause right there because as I've been praying through this, I, I think I hear an echo of Satan's temptation way back in Matthew chapter 4. Remember when the Spirit of God took Jesus out into the wilderness and Satan meets him there and he tempts him. And the gist of Satan's temptation back in Matthew chapter 4 is this. He's like, come on, Jesus. You're the Son of God. Why should you be hungry? Why should you be rejected? Why shouldn't you be ruling right now? You're the Son of God. You're entitled to it. Why are you taking these scraps? You, should, you could have everything. See, I believe that temptation may have come back here. As, as he's laying face down in that garden, feeling this weight, with Satan just saying, why are you anticipating this pain? Why are you looking at this suffering? You're the son of God, Jesus. Come on, you don't deserve this. See, Satan has always wanted to keep Jesus off of the cross. He even tried to keep Jesus off of the cross through the mouth of Peter. Remember when Peter says, no, Jesus, you're not going to die on the cross. And Jesus says, silences him, say, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus here, he's agonizing because he knows what he faces, and it's contrary to his soul. And in verse 38, he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved. How deeply? He says, to the point of death. His inner person is surrounded by deep, deep grief. This overwhelming sorrow, sadness, distress, isolation. He'd been abandoned. He'd been betrayed. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have been there? 
How many of you have been to that place where the one person that vowed to love you forever leaves you or cheats on you? The the one opportunity you thought was going to be your forever thing fell through. Or the child that you poured so much of yourself into didn't make it. Where our hopes and dreams and the things that other people have in life. And Satan would say, go after that, Billy. Choose that. Why are you sitting back praying for your neighbors when you could be out there making money, right? And we're tempted in this way, and we see Jesus right in the thick of it. Right in the depths of it. How serious was this? Jesus says it was enough to kill him. He was in it. Jesus has been down in the depths. He knows our sorrow. We have to remember at this point here that the cross actually isn't what killed Jesus. Jesus didn't die of crucifixion. He didn't die from the nails that were driven through his hands and his feet. He didn't die from the crown of thorns that was forced on his head. He didn't die from the lashings on his back that left the skin on his back just hanging and blowing in the rib, like ribbons of flesh on the cross. He didn't die from the spear that was thrust into his side. He didn't die from asphyxiation, which history tells us most crucifixion victims probably died of. I think Jesus gave up his life on the cross as his heart literally broke. He probably, his heart probably just exploded by the time he got to the cross. He literally died of a broken heart. He gave his life up. Because of the stress, the agony of the cross. Here in the garden, we see it. Before the cross, it's severe enough to threaten his life. And so, in the garden, we see sorrow gripping this scene. And there's a second word that appears now as we've walked through the sorrow. We see the word supplication. Sorrow and supplication. Supplication is a fancy biblical word for prayer. But I don't want to use prayer because I'm choosing four words that all start with S. Like you have to do in a good sermon. So, (laughs) sorrow, supplication. Look at verse 38. It says, Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And so here's Jesus. He's, he's seeking this secluded place. He wants some privacy. He wanted to be alone with the Father. His heart is at the breaking point. He could die from sorrow and anguish, anguish if he wasn't sustained by the, by the grace of his Father. And he seeks out a more private place, probably shaded uh, away from the moonlight, away from any intrusion. So, and he tells his disciples, stay awake. Watch me. Watch, watch out for me. Make sure no one intrudes here. He knows that Judas is coming, right? He knows that Judas is on his way. Judas would have been bringing troops from Fort San Antonio, which is right down there on the gate. It's the barracks, the place where the Roman troops were. Jesus knew that. He knew the time. He's like, stay alert. He knew that the chief priests and the leaders would send people and that they themselves would probably show up. These men who Jesus had silenced in the light of day, standing out in public, these men are so cowardly that they go after Jesus under the cloak of darkness in the seclusion of this garden filled with olive trees. And Jesus says to his disciples, watch with me. And he goes a little further. The apostle Luke tells us in his account that he went a stone's throw away. Depending on who you are, you can throw a stone like, what, 50 yards, maybe 30 yards Some people maybe seven yards, whatever, but it's not far. The point is he wasn't that far. And so he's alone, his grief grows, the sorrow increases, and Jesus falls flat in pleading anguish before God asking for for strength. And the, the text tells us he fell flat on his face. 
And he prayed, and his prayer is this, my father, if it's possible to let this cup pass from me. Is it possible to let this cup pass from me? Now, what does he mean by that? What is he saying? I don't think he's trying to say, hey, I don't want to redeem sinners, right? He's not saying, Father, I take it back. I don't want to do this part in the new covenant. I'm, I'm, you know, it's more than I want. I think he's simply saying, is there any other way? Does it have to be this? He's not asking to avoid the redemptive work. He's not asking if there's another way to accomplishment. He's saying, he's saying is there another way? Is there just another way that we can do it? If there is, let this cut pass for me. And the cup, this idea of the cup is very important. It's symbolic of his suffering. Jesus has mentioned it several times in his ministry. In John chapter 18 and in Matthew 20, Jesus tells us that there's a cup that he must drink from. And the cup in the Bible is referred to both in the Old and the New Testament uh, is, is tied to God's wrath. Uh, we see back in the Old Testament that it's, the cup of wrath represents the fury of God over sin. In the New Testament, we see it represents the punishment of God against sin. Either way, Jesus is saying, hey, I really don't want to drink that cup, right? That's a bad cup. It's important for us to understand that on the cross, Jesus didn't become a sinner. He didn't become a sinner. On the cross, he drank the cup of God's full wrath against sinner. He knew he came to redeem sins. Jesus knew that. That's why he came. He said, I come to seek and save the lost. But the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath was more than he could bear. And so here he lays, the Son of God, in a garden at night, in the dirt, face down, making supplication to God for a way to redeem sinners that does not involve drinking the cup of wrath. Listen to how he pleads with the Father. Verse 39, he says, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He's saying, your will be done. Jesus isn't looking to force the hand of the Father here, like I try to do when I'm trying to pray my way out of a situation. Jesus is seeking the will of the Father, and he's willing to submit to it. And Jesus does this three times, right? He goes and he checks on his, he's like, okay, i got to check on the guys that have my back, see if they've heard anything, seen anything. Sleeping, right? Goes back to prayer, the same thing, falls on his face, submits himself to God, asking if there's any other way. Goes back, finds his friend sleeping. Goes back to prayer, throws himself on the ground. The Bible says he prayed the same thing again. Goes back, finds his friends sleeping, right? Three times. Clearly, Jesus doesn't want to be separated from God. He doesn't want to drink the cup of wrath. He doesn't want to feel the full fury of the wrath of God poured out on him. The thought, it says, almost kills him. But he always comes back to your will be done, no matter how intense, no matter how terrifying the struggle might be. This is tremendous insight for us. How do we pray? Man, this is how we pray. The writer of Hebrews, this is really cool. The writer of Hebrews was given supernatural insight into this moment by the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 5, he talks about it. Verse 7, he says, In the days of his flesh... Uh, that just means that in the days that Jesus walked the earth as a man, covered in flesh. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. See, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. He was crying loudly. He was yelling and agonizing tears, crying. So these disciples that were just maybe two dozen yards away from him would have heard this bitter weeping. In this moment, I'm painting this picture so we can see in this moment, we see Jesus' profound love for the Father and his willingness to do the Father's will. We also see his profound love for unworthy sinners as he anticipates what he's about to endure. We see a resolution to keep the will of God. And here again, I believe 
Personally, I, I believe that we see a waves of satanic attack this night. Three times he finds his friends sleeping. He goes looking for support. He goes looking for comfort. Three times find them sleeping. Remember the first temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4? He's out in the wilderness. How many times did Satan tempt him? Three times. I think there's, there seems to bear the same mark in this moment. And so here we've seen this scene move from sorrow to supplication. And now the third word that we're going to hang on for a moment is sleep. Sleep. Verse 40. It says, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, just to remind you again, it is after midnight, and it's natural to sleep after midnight for for many people, especially after a very busy, hectic week. We have been studying this last week of Jesus' life for several months. That's how much activity there is. This had been a crazy, hectic week. They had just had a huge meal. Uh, They just celebrated the Passover. Uh, They had just had a long, hard walk up this hill, and they're asleep. The Apostle Luke adds a, a little more insight into this. In Luke chapter 22, he says, when Jesus got up from prayer, he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping from sorrow. They cried themselves to sleep. Whatever energy was left, they had spent on tears and and weeping. Why would they be crying? First of all, I'm sure they heard Jesus bitterly weeping as he was praying to the Father. But from their perspective, everything was going wrong. All their dreams of the kingdom, it seemed to be unraveling, right? Jesus is going to die. They're going to be scattered, and everything is coming apart. They'd just been told about this betrayer, and now Judas isn't with them. Their sadness would have been profound. They're like, wait a minute. All these really crummy things that Jesus talks about are actually happening. And they're like, wait, things aren't working out the way that I think they should work out. We also have to remember these are the same guys that slept through another significant event. If you remember the transfiguration, right? If there's any event that you would have wanted to be awake to see, that would have been it, right? But on this night, their sleep is induced even more by their weeping. Jesus asked Peter, You and the rest couldn't keep watch with me for an hour. After the second time of praying, he comes back, finds them sleeping, and it says their eyes were heavy. Their eyes were heavy. It reminds me of when I'm driving, and I look in the rearview mirror, almost home, and I want my kids to go to sleep in the car because I want them to have a good nap at home because they just become holy terrors at about 3 in the afternoon if they don't get a nap. And I look in the rearview mirror, and Shem's eyes are like this. And I'm like, hey, buddy, let's talk about trains. Don't fall asleep. Let's wake up. And he's like, I'm not sleepy, you know. His eyes are heavy. The disciples are in the garden. They're trying, but it's after midnight, and their eyes are heavy. We've all been there, right? You're driving at night, and you're like smacking yourself in the face. It's hard. It's a battle. Well, I do that. It's a battle to stay awake. So I'm not trying to, you know, demonize the disciples too much here. I say all that and kind of sit in that moment for a point. And here's the issue. If you're going to write one thing down today, here's the issue. At the crisis moments in life, are you sleeping? Jesus tells them, wake up. Watch with me. Right? It's like a little, maybe a little companionship. He says, stay awake. This is crisis time, guys. Satan is active. The demons are active. Never have they been more active. Right? Right now, we're getting close to the redemptive work of the cross. He's saying, wake up. All of hell is geared up. You better be awake. You can't be indifferent to me, right? 
Like, could you imagine Jesus in that moment? Like, seriously? You can't keep yourself awake tonight? He's like, you can't be indifferent to my struggle. You can't be indifferent to your struggle right now. You're in it too. You've seen the state of the world. You know what God's doing here. But in their sorrow, listen, this is important because I see myself in this. In their sorrow and in their self-pity and their smugness and their self-confidence, they just collapse in sleep. Those of us who've been Christians for a while and have experienced spiritual warfare, we know that in all spiritual battles, the victory goes to the vigilant, not the sleepers. How many times does the enemy, does Satan come and say, hey, wake up, let's spar, right? Never, never going to happen. Satan is lulling non-Christians and Christians alike into a deep sleep. Listen, church, I believe God is saying the same thing to us today. Wake up. We have to know what's going on around us. We have to understand the times we live in. We have to understand the seasons we live in. We have to understand the movements of the enemy. And Jesus is saying, wake up. Keep your eyes open. Be alert. We live in a world at war. We can't be self-confident or unprepared for the subtleties and the crafty schemes of Satan. See, the disciples were totally unprepared. They were self-confident and they were sleeping. That was their error, right? The disciples thought they were confident enough, right? They thought they were faithful enough. They thought, not me, I'll never fail. The disciples were sleeping when they should have been praying. They were sleeping, and when temptation came, they fell. They weren't ready. They were unprepared. And here's the question. This is what God has been impressing on me, and it's been gnarly these last two weeks as I've been preparing. I've been hearing this, Billy, are you ready? What's your posture? Are you a prayerful man, or are you a self-confident sleeper? And I would ask that question to the church this morning. Are you a prayerful man or woman, or are you a self-confident sleeper? That's a heavy question. Sorrow, we've seen that in this story. Supplication, we've seen that. Sleep, we just looked at that. Now the final word is strength. We see Jesus' strength at the end of this account. Look with me, please. Verse 45. It says, He came to the disciples and he said, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinner. He says, Get up, let us get going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So Jesus rallies the guys. Here he stands. Uh, in other gospel accounts, it says he was, he was so uh, gripped with sorrow that he was sweating blood on his forehead. I could just see Jesus standing there with bloody sweat on his forehead, surrounded by his sleepy disciples, rubbing their heavy eyes, right? Jesus stands courageously. He's unbowed. He's ready to face the cross. See, his moment had come. The last temptation is now over. The cup got passed to him, and he chose, I'm going to drink of that cup. I'm going to to do the will of my Father. There's no trembling, and he says, arrive. Gentlemen, come on, let's go. And he's not saying, let's go and run away. He's saying, come on, the hour of redemption is here. Let's go. And what we see after after this final temptation from now on is great power and great glory. We see Jesus in all of his strength from here on out. Jesus steps forward to meet his advancing enemy. He probably was looking off, and you could see the flickering of torchlights through the the, the thick olive garden there. It says in verse 46, Get up, let's be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And then it says, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who is betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus, said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. 
That infamous kiss, right? The Judas kiss. Jesus saw it coming, and he walked right toward it. This is Jesus in all of his strength. And what we see in all of this is the power of Christ over Satan. We see the power of Jesus' love for the Father overcome his own fears that night in the garden, and we see the greatness of his love for others overcome his sorrow. See, all of that is here in this story. And there's a lesson for us in here. See, we're given this incredible supernatural glimpse into how Jesus dealt with temptation. Verse 41, Jesus says, Keep watching. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. Let's read that again. Everyone, look up here and read this. Keep watching and praying. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. But gosh, at night... When I've got nothing else to do and I've got idle time and I go online, I inevitably end up on that one website or that, you know, pornography or whatever. I just, I get sucked into it. It's this addiction. It's this, right? Keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. What do we do when we face temptation, right? Are there 10 steps to facing temptation? Jesus says, keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's not good enough to have a willing spirit. Why? Because of the weakness of our flesh. Therefore, we keep watch. Keep watch and pray. That's what Jesus was doing up there. He's battling temptation. He was battling sorrow. He was down in the thick of it. He's on his face. Doing what? He's praying. He's alert. He's awake. He's understanding the season that he's in. He knows what's going on around him. And he's praying with all of the passion in his heart. So church, how do we face temptation? How are we to deal with temptation? I would propose step one is to know and rely on the word of God. And step two is to know and rely on God in prayer. Jesus teaches us this. In Matthew chapter 4, in his first temptation, he's in the wilderness. Satan pops up, tempts him three times. Every time, he's able to resist temptation with what? Scripture, the Word of God. What he tells us there is that it's essential in temptation to know the Word of God, right? Your Word have I hid in my heart so I may not sin against you. Your Word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. See, the promises of God are true. They're eternal and true. We have to be armed with the Word of God. And then here in the garden, in Matthew 26, he teaches us the other necessary ingredient to battle temptation, prayer. In the first temptation, Jesus turns to the Word, and the second, he turns to God in prayer. And so when we face temptation, we need the Word of God, and we need the power of God in prayer. We need the Word of God, and we need the power of God in prayer. You want to walk victoriously? You want to live a triumphant Christian life? Do you want to be able to stand and face your accusers? Stand and face your temptations? Stand and face your enemy by the power of the Holy Spirit? Because God has made you a new creation, and you can stand there when they're they're coming to tempt you, when they're coming to draw you into something you don't want to do. And you've got options. You're clever. You're smart but we can stand fearlessly with boldness with the Word of God and the strength of God as prayerful people who study God. See, Jesus lets us in on this incredible lesson in the private and intimate moments of his own struggle with Satan in the wilderness, with his own battle with depression, with his own depth of discouragement being revealed to all of us. He shows us the need for the Word of God in our life 
And he shows us that even though we have good intentions, our spirit may be willing, he says, but our flesh is miserably weak. Listen, you can't stand on your own good intentions. You can't stand on your own self-confidence. You must throw yourself face down before God and cry out for deliverance from the strength of temptation. Only God can supernaturally face temptation. Good intentions aren't enough. The flesh is too weak. We see that in our story in the disciples today. They wanted to do the right thing, right? They just lacked the strength. That's how it is with us. You want triumph and temptation? Ingrain the word of God into your life. That's the path. In Jesus' suffering, the Lord provides redemption, but he also provides this incredible path to victory over temptation. It's a path we can walk on, right? The word, watchfulness, prayerfulness, that's it. Be aware, be in the word, be prayerful. That's how we deal with temptation. That's how we deal with sin. Pour the word in, stay alert, understand what's going on around you by way of temptation. Be discerning and fall face down in prayer. Cry out for the power of God. This is how Jesus shows us we can rise and walk to face the foe as he did. I love that picture of Jesus standing in his strength in the garden this night. Church, as we face hard times, and I know many of us are right now, as we face hard times, we're going to submit to one of two things. You're either going to submit, you're either going to give yourself over to the power and the plans of the Lord, or you're going to stand in self-confidence following your own agenda. You're either going to submit to the Lord, right, standing on the Word of God face down in prayer, Are you going to stand self-confident like, nah, I got this. I'll figure this out. See, in the garden, Jesus models a necessary full submission. Here's the Son of God fully submitted to the Father. And we see that submission's not necessarily fun or easy, right? Jesus says he's brought to the point of death. Many of us today face tough times. I'm aware of that. But see, when I face tough times, here's the thing. We have to be sure to frame our submission properly in our minds. Because when I face temptation or when I, when I face tough times, I ask the wrong questions. Often what, when I face it, I ask, is it going to be painful? Is it going to be hard? I don't, I don't like pain. I like things to be quick. I like them to be easy, right? I ask the wrong questions. I should be asking, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is he faithful? And for some of this, today, this might mean that you need to give yourself over to Jesus. Maybe today's the day that we release our white-knuckling of everything that we hold on to in life. Maybe today's the day to let go of the idea that you cling to what you think is yours, or you cling to that idea that you yourself are somehow holding your family together, or you yourself are somehow providing for people, or you yourself are the one who is so important and so integral. God is saying, you need to get face down, let go. And seek the power of God in prayer. Today we lay before the Father and we cry out in prayer for help. See, Jesus is familiar with our sorrows. He's familiar with our pain. He's familiar with our hardship. We could trust him to be with us in our fear and in our brokenness. And maybe today you take your fears and the things that you cling to and you pour them onto Jesus. Remember just a few weeks ago we talked about that woman that had everything she owned wrapped up into this vial of perfume, this extraordinary uh, vial of a very valuable perfume, probably the most valuable thing that anyone in that room owned. And she breaks it and she pours it onto Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing to the Father pouring himself out this evening in the garden. All of his fears, all of his concerns, his, his wishes and hopes and dreams for a different path, 
What a sweet aroma of worship that is. And today, church, we are invited to join Jesus in that extravagant worship. We can lay down our fear, our sorrow, our loneliness. We can lay down our plans. You can lay down your most prized possession. Whatever it is that keeps you from falling flat, open-handed before God, lay them at Jesus' feet. Because Jesus surrendered his will to his Father. Church, this morning, let's worship Jesus from a posture of submission. On our face, in prayer, crying out for help, crying out for strength, crying out for power. Now, this is spoiler alert, okay? But you, hopefully you've already read the book of Matthew a few times in your life. This is this side of the cross. On the other side of the cross, Jesus meets these unfaithful, betraying, lying cowards, cooks them breakfast, and he welcomes them into his kingdom, and he fills them with his Holy Spirit. And we see them preaching with power. We see them healing, casting out demons. We see the birth of the church from these same men who were sleeping in the garden. Church, listen, we are on the other side of the cross the power of God, the healing strength of God, the security of God to walk free even though we face depression, even though we face hard times, even though we face someone we thought would love us forever abandoning us, even though you find yourself in the midst of sorrow, God meets you like he met his son in the garden. Cry out to him today. Jesus, church, Jesus was victorious. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you meet us in our brokenness. It's such a privilege, Lord, to be taken to this secret place, to see the struggles and the victory of Jesus here. God, we're overwhelmed at such love and such grace, God. So we worship now, and as we go through this week, God, I pray that you would remind us again of the suffering of Jesus. God, that you'd fill our hearts with gratitude, a gratitude that demonstrates itself in the way we live, in the way we speak, in the way we think, the things we hold on to. God, we want to honor the one who went through so much and triumphantly gave his life for us. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would do what Jesus promised that you would do, that you would convict us and convince us, convict us of our sin, convince us of the worthiness and the righteousness and the reality of Jesus Christ to meet with us today. And so, God, we offer ourselves in worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.